our Old Testament lesson, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. These verses have been very important within the section of Matthew's Gospel we've been in, indeed the whole Gospel, but especially within this fifth and final discourse. As Jesus speaks about his uh, return, he keeps referring to himself as the Son of Man. And here in this vision, we do not see the return of Jesus to earth, but rather what we see is his ascension into heaven, and then the purpose of that ascension is that the nations would serve him. So let's read now Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, <clears throat> with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please now turn with me to our New Testament lesson and sermon text. Please turn with me to Matthew 25. Pastor Brandon was lined up to preach this sermon today. Um, yesterday I found out that he has a pretty gnarly um, uh, illness right now and is unable to really speak well. He's lost his voice. So needless to say, um, I'm in the saddle today. And we're therefore looking forward a little bit from our next text. Brandon's going to be preaching that next Sunday. He'll be doing 1 through 13. So he's already got that sermon prepared, just couldn't deliver it. And so he'll be delivering this next Sunday. So today, we're going to look ahead to the next text, verses 14 through 30. We're still in that fifth and final discourse. But today our sermon text is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. So let's give our attention now to our New Testament lesson and sermon text. Jesus speaking. And let me just also direct you, verse, let me read verse 1 as well. Because again, that context is important. And because Brian is not preaching it, you don't have that. So we'll begin with verse 1. Then we'll skip to our sermon text in verse 14. Pardon me. Jesus speaking. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Okay, now verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who, ha who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, 
You delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let us begin by recalling where we are in Matthew's Gospel to make sure that we have in our minds the important context in which this uh, sermon text fits. As I mentioned last week, there are five discourses. We're coming to the end of the very fifth. At the end of this fifth, we transition immediately into what's called the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, his um, betrayal, his crucifixion, death, resurrection. That is just around the corner. And so here in the fifth discourse, it's important that Jesus begins to direct the disciples' attention to the future. He's about ready to depart. To, in a twofold way, really. To depart by way of crucifixion, and then to depart by way of his ascension. These five discourses are five lengthy teachings that Jesus gives. Of course there is teaching in the midst of the narrative sections of Matthew's Gospel, but within the five discourses, we see extended teaching about his kingdom. Recall the first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount. An extended teaching about the righteousness of Christ's messianic, that is, heavenly kingdom. The second discourse, Jesus teaches about the kingdom and how it is opposed by the world. 
not only our master, but also we, his servants, will be opposed by the surrounding world. The third discourse, you might recall those parables of the kingdom. The parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds and the wheat that's gathered in, the angels sent out to gather in the elect and so forth. That's chapter 13. And that parable teaches us about the growth of the kingdom of heaven. That it grows by the spread of the word, the gospel. The fourth discourse is one about sin and about forgiveness. Between Christ's first and second comings, there is still that sad, tragic reality that we are characterized by sin, aren't we? And so we need to know between his first two and second coming how to live and how to conduct ourselves with respect to this indwelling sin and the sin that we see in our brothers and in our sisters. Now in this fifth discourse, we think about the return of Jesus, his coming again on the clouds. He will come back to bring the fullness of the kingdom to bear, the consummation of the heavenly kingdom. And so then the question becomes, how do we as his servants, as Christ's disciples, prepare ourselves? How do we live in light of that second coming, prepare ourselves for his return in order that he commends us as good and faithful servants? Now, again, this return implies a departure, right? It implies that Jesus, who will soon be turned over, will leave. It implies his ascension. And it is that ascension of Jesus that then provides for you and for me this odd shape of the Christian life. That we are pilgrims. The kingdom has arrived. It has been inaugurated. But his ascension means that we are still pilgrims on earth. That Christ, with respect to his body and blood, Christ is not here. Of course, by his Holy Spirit, who has been poured out, he's never absent from us, as our catechism teaches. But his body and blood are not here. His glory has not yet dawned upon earth. His glory is coming. It is future at the time of his return. So the question becomes, how do we live in light of his resurrection, yet bodily absence? He is in heaven with the Father. And he will one day return. We confess this in the Creed, of course. That he has ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We confess this at the time of the Lord's Supper. Christ has died. It's in the past tense. Christ is risen. He is alive today. Christ will come again. We are situated between his two comings. And so how then do we live? in light of his bodily departure. His bodily departure means, sadly, also an opportunity for sin. And that's really the thing that begins to come out within our text today. The opportunity for sin with the departure 
of the master, right? Think about the workplace. The boss says, hey guys, I'm going to be on vacation for a few weeks. I'll come again, but your master is departing right now. So what can oftentimes happen when the boss master is gone? Well, there becomes a bit of a dilemma in the workplace. How are the workers going to conduct themselves? Will they play fast and loose? Or will they work just as hard as if he were there, present, in body and soul, watching over you? How will you act in the time of his bodily absence, right? You might think about a classroom setting where the teacher says to that group of kids, high schoolers, junior high, elementary, I need to go down the hall for a few minutes. Wait here for me, I will come again. What do those students do? Do they sit there and behave themselves and conduct themselves just like they would if that teacher were in the class? Or do they begin to use the departure as opportunity for sin? Or we could also speak about what happens if parents leave the house and leave some teenagers in charge. We recently were reading in our house, Farmer Boy. And the parents leave for a bit of a trip. And let's just say that those kids left behind had a bit of fun that they would never have had if Ma and Pa were not there. Opportunities for sin occur when our Master is not bodily present with us. Again, that is the situation in which we find ourselves, beloved. We live today as Christians in a time of pilgrimage, and the question for you is how will you conduct yourself? He is not now with you in body and blood. He is absent from us. You do not see Him and he, with his human eyes, does not see you. How will you live? This beautiful illustration that Jesus gives us is titled A Parable of the Talents within your Bible. It really captures this so well for us, does it not? This kingdom of heaven. What is it like? Now, oftentimes, Christ's parables are meant to conceal meaning. Okay? We see this back in that third discourse, chapter 13. He's concealing meaning from the crowds as an act of judgment. However, he gives the key of understanding to his disciples in order that the parables are no longer than, than a mode of judgment but rather they become then a mode of illustration to help. Oftentimes in our day, the Sunday school answer is that parables are always to clarify things. I want to say, no, they're not always to clarify things. Jesus says that in Matthew 13. He says this in, in the Gospel of Mark as well. This is an act of judgment for the outsider, but for those who believe, he gives the key to interpret so that it then may become blessing. We have the key of interpretation. 
We understand this is about the kingdom. Chapter 25, verse 1. We've learned enough in Matthew's Gospel to understand what's going on here. That this is not judgment for us, but rather it clarifies for us how we then ought to live as Christians in this time of pilgrimage between Christ's first and second coming, that we might not allow this opportunity for sin to capture us. To act like those proverbial teenagers when mom and dad are gone, the students in the classroom when the teacher goes down the hall, or those workers whose boss is on vacation. We learn here to be ready for Christ's return. How? Be ready for our master by serving him now. Be ready for your master today by serving him now. Don't wait for service. We serve him now. We have two points today. When I ask the question, what sort of servants? And second, what sort of master? These are two questions raised by implication within our text. What sort of servants? What sort of master? In our first point, notice I'm not asking if you will be a servant. I'm not asking that question. Will you be a servant? No, not at all. Because you are a servant. Even if you are here today as an atheist, you are a servant. We all serve someone or something. That's just the plain reality. We might serve ourselves. We might serve some ideology. We might serve some other religion. But no matter who you are, no matter what you confess, you are a servant. We all are. The Apostle Paul describes us in two categories, all of mankind, in Romans chapter 6, as either slaves of sin, leading to death, or slaves of righteousness leading to life. We are all servants, slaves of something or someone. This is because of how God made us. He is the creator, and so when He makes His creature, He imposes upon them, upon us, an identity. He made us to be His servants. And so in the very constitution of who you and I are is servanthood. I've mentioned in the past a term that I've found to be very helpful. We oftentimes think about mankind being homo sapien. I think it's helpful to think about us as being homo liturgicus. As worshiping creatures, as serving creatures. That's what liturgy means, a servant a way of service. We are homo liturgicus. In our very constitution of our being, we are made to serve God. With sin in the fall, we begin to serve other things or other beings. But in our very core of our being, we are servants. And as we forget or as we suppress that created identity... 
We then begin to invent other masters for ourselves. We might serve ourselves. We might serve some cause. As we begin to suppress this identity as being servants of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we begin to move in very self-harmful, self-damaging ways. But if we recognize ourselves to be truly servants of God, we actually find ourselves to be in a place of joy and of blessing. For then we begin to live as how we truly are. Think about this. So many people who want to reject the idea of serving God, they end up in some very damaging places. As they deny created reality, they begin to deny things that are at the core of their being even. Perhaps denying their gender. Perhaps denying even being human. Some calling themselves cats. There are clear examples of this that we can look at and point to in our world that as we move away from the God-given identity, we begin to find ourselves in places that are very damaging. But while we could look at this in a way that points the finger to the outside world and we can identify some real problems out there, we can also see this in ourselves as well. Do we have an inclination because of our own internal sin to begin to see ourselves as masters of our own domain and living for ourselves, not living day by day, 24-7, as servants of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is really what our parable today is about. Do you see yourself as a servant? I think that one of the distractions that happens within our text here is that people want to become distracted by the talent here. This is not about your skills. Okay? It's not really even about the money per se. If it were about this money or something like this, I mean, we don't even know if it's... A, a talent is just a unit of weight. Okay? We don't know if it's gold or silver or copper. We have no idea here. That's not the point. The talent here is a prop. It can be distracting to us if we try to identify, is this talent my spiritual gifts? Is this talent the gospel? Is this talent the Holy Spirit? What's the talent symbolize here? I think that's a distracting question. The talent is a prop that creates an opportunity to find out what will these three servants be. It's an opportunity for them to show their true colors. What will they be when the master is not there? It's an opportunity. That's what these talents are. To show what sort of servants, our first point, what are they? The first two servants very clearly embrace and celebrate their calling as servants. They're given that prop and they get immediately to work. Now, one thing that I think is an unfortunate translation here in our text is that it talks about them as traders. They took their talents and began to trade with those units of money. I don't know that's the best. I don't think it is. Because really, I think it's a broader category here of them just simply getting to work. Okay? If it's 
translated here as a trader, it sounds like something you can do with your stock market. Like you just send some money to your you know, 501c3 or whatever. It's out of sight, out of mind. You can just kick back. You've got your investment taken care of. Or maybe you conduct some day trading or something like that, but you're not really that engaged. That's not the point here. The point here is they got to work as servants. Okay? They took that money as seed money for a business, perhaps, a venture, perhaps, that they were entirely self-invested in for the sake of not themselves, but for the sake of their master. Because when that master comes back, they're not surprised. They've been working for him for the whole time and know what they do. They don't only take the five talents or the two talents to their master. They take everything they earn and they immediately bring it to him. They give in their entire selves to this venture because they saw themselves as servants. You see that? They're immediately getting to work. They're not second-guessing anything. Because they know who they are. The other, the third, he takes it as an opportunity to be, as the master points out, slothful. He did not get to work. The only work he did was at the very beginning dug a hole and covered it back up. Then he went and did his own thing. He was still a servant, but then he began to serve himself, not his master. He began to live for himself. His master's out of sight, out of mind. This is like those Christians, unfortunately, that we might have run across who, you know, once in a blue moon they might show up to worship. Maybe, maybe. Even more like they probably just said a prayer at one point in time. They tick that off the box. I said my prayer. I'm a Christian now. But they don't live a life of service to the Lord as their master. So never do they think about him, never do they live for him, never does his word impress upon them something inconvenient in their lives. Because if you're a Christian, and you are serving the Lord, and he is the Lord of your life, there will be times where you are bound to do something you don't really want to do. Because his word says it. This, mass, this uh, servant here, the third one, he is the sort of wicked servant. He is the one who is slothful toward his master. He is certainly active toward himself. He did his own thing. He demonstrates his unfaithfulness, his infidelity, not serving his master, not seeing himself for who he is as a servant of God in Christ. And so, what happens when the master returns? There's no longer any more opportunity for him to serve. It's kind of a surprising thing with the return of the master. 
Because the first two, they're given opportunity for more service. Notice that? That eternal life for them is not just kicking back on the beach with a Mai Tai in your hand. Eternal life is about increased service to the Master. And so when the Master comes back, he sees they've been serving, he rewards them with more service. Now you might be thinking, wait, what? That doesn't sound great. Actually, it does. Because what the Master says here is that that increased service and responsibility goes hand in hand with enter into the joy of your Master. That's who you've been created to be. You were made to be a servant of the Lord. And so that is where you will find fulfillment is in service to the Lord. That is where you will find joy. That is where you will find peace. That is where you will find wholeness in service to the one who made you and to the one who by the blood of Christ has redeemed you. And so when we conceive then of the consummation of Christ's kingdom, when he returns to us to grant us the fullness of his kingdom, we think about our service as gloriously increased, blessedly increased, joyfully increased. For what we do now then becomes amplified. The third, however, does not receive that opportunity for continued service. He neglected to do it in this life. And so the privilege of serving the Lord is ripped away from him and he is cast into a place of judgment without joy. If you think that it is good to serve yourself or to serve someone other than the true God, note where it goes. It ends in destruction. Which is why those who refuse to serve God now are self-destructive in this life. It's where it will lead. So we ask ourselves, our first point, what kind of servant? Do you recognize yourself as a servant of the true God? Do you see in yourself one who is laboring to be a faithful servant of God? That your entire life, not just a few things given to you, that's where the whole, if you emphasize the talent here, then you begin to think of, okay, what do I have? And then that thing I have, I give to God. No, you are to give all of yourself to God. The question is, are you a servant, a faithful one of the true God? Not just with something he's given you, but with your entire life, with your entire being. That service in eternity begins in the here and now. Our first point, what kind of servant? Our second and final point, what sort of master that's the sort of thing that, once again, the ascension of Jesus forces us to ask. 
if he were here with us, there really wouldn't be much of a debate at all. But the fact that our king is not here in body and blood, the fact he's in heaven at the Father's right hand, forces us to walk by faith, not by sight. And so we begin to ask the question, what do we conceive of our king? What sort of lord is he? What sort of master is he? Who is this one? We notice with that third servant, what was lurking in the back of his mind. Do you recall what he said when his master brought him forward? He said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. The idea there is like harsh and cruel, even prone to outbursts of violence, wicked. That's the suggestion that's going on here, what he's saying, I knew you to be a harsh or cruel man, a violent man. That's why he's afraid. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. In other words, he thought that he was not just cruel in terms of violence, but also taking a thieving master. One who grabs what's not his and claims it for himself. That's an amazing description. Tragic. But really quite amazing. Shocking. Because that's not the master you see in this parable, is it? Who is the master you see in this parable? Well, one who instead gives bountifully. He doesn't take. He first entrusts those talents to his servants, right? And then when they bring him what's rightfully his, the original talents and the profit, he gives it all to them. He doesn't just take the proceeds. He doesn't just take the initial seed money. He gives everything to his first two faithful servants. He's a bountifully giving God. He's a glorious king who is generous, not one who takes. Furthermore, he is a clearly not one who is harsh and cruel and wicked. For what do you see? He commends those first two servants and says, enter into my joy. Not harsh, not cruel, but joyful. We speak about the doctrine of the blessedness of God. And it's perhaps my favorite attribute. Because when you think about God's blessedness, you are thinking about a God who is utterly overflowing in his joy. That's often not how we think about God. But his joy is inexhaustible. He can allow you to participate and share in his joy. And that does not... Take away from the joy he has. Because his joy cannot be quantified. It is boundless. It's not like he has a certain amount and gives you a little bit, and then he has less. No, he's overflowing in joy, in an inexhaustible ocean of it, that is never taken away as he allows you to share in it. And so here we do not see a master who is harsh, and a master who steals, 
but one who is joyful and one who is blessed in himself. But what does this teach us? It's interesting what's going on with his third servants. For over the course of time, he has begun to conceive of him in his own mind, and with the absence of his master, he's begun to conceive in his mind a corrupted view of that master. Right? He's begun to drift away from truth and begin to shape in his mind a view of his master that justifies what he wants to do. Let me say that again. He begins to drift away from the truth of who his master is toward a version of his master that justifies what he wants to do. What did he want to do? He wanted to be slothful toward his master and serve himself. So what kind of a vision of his master did he adopt? He adopted a vision of his master that's not with reality, but one that is harsh, one that is thieving, one that is stingy. We see this in our day. As Christians drift away from the faith, or even not even Christians drifting away from the faith, but people in the world who want to go and live a life that they want to live, they begin to conceive of a higher power or to conceive of God in a way that affirms exactly what they want to do. My God's like this. I like to think of God like that. And guess what? It just so happens to fit exactly what they've always wanted to do with their lives. That's exactly what this servant here is doing. Drifting away from the reality to affirm and justify his own actions. And this is what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden. Recall, how did he challenge Eve? He began to suggest to Eve that God is not good, and God is stingy. God's got this tree here, Eve, and it's going to make you wise if you, eat it, if you eat it. It'll open your eyes. He's got this blessing he's holding back from you. He's a stingy God. Sure, he's given you all the other things in creation. He's held this back, but look what he's held back from you. And so then, Adam and woman begin to conceive of God as stingy and not good. And what did they do? They took the fruit themselves and they ate. So we have to ask that question repeatedly. What sort of master are we serving? Are we serving the one that the Bible proclaims to us? One who is blessed. One who is joyful. One who is good and generous. Or are we beginning to think about a God of our own imagination in order that we can justify a way of life that we want to live sinfully. What sort of master, beloved? Our second point. But let me close by bringing it back to the main idea here. We are called to serve. That is how we prepare for Christ's return. Within the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24, where Jesus is seated on the Mount of Olives, he helps us, he teaches us clearly 
about signs that occur between his first and second coming. He teaches us about the things that characterize the entire age. He helps us to understand with clarity that there will be a final man of lawlessness, as Paul teaches in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, who will bring about a rebellion, who will desecrate creation immediately before the return of Jesus. So he's, taught, he's prepared us for Christ's return, for his own return, in that way. But he's also preparing us for Christ's return to tell us how to get busy, what to do. How do you prepare for the return of your master? How do you prepare for the, for the return of your Lord? Treat him like your Lord now. Treat him like your master now. Be his disciple now. Give your life to him now. Not just one part of your life, your entire life. Live for him. Live for the blessed one. Live for the joyful one. Live for the generous one. Live for the one who loves you. Live for the one who will return for you. Live for the one who died for your sins. Live for the one who empowers you by the Spirit. Live for Him because that is what you were created to do. To live for God. And now, on this side of the fall, we live for God by way of His mediator, Jesus Christ. Live for that glorious and triumphant King, beloved. When things are hard, they will be hard. Live for Him. When He gives you a vocation, a calling in your life that is difficult, be it a task or a relationship, no matter where He has called you, you live for Him. For he entrusts things to you that you might be his servant and learn to serve because that will bring fulfillment to you in, a, tempor or in a, a, a partial way in this life and fully in the life to come. He calls you to serve him wherever he's placed you. That is how we prepare for the return of our master is to treat him like our master now. So, beloved, let us be ready for his return. We become ready by serving him now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.